Well, welcome to River City Church. My name is Brandon. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome to you. Good to have you guys here this morning. Uh, we have been, uh, this fall, we have studied through the books of First and Second Peter, and uh, this morning we're going to wrap that whole series up, kind of tie the Christmas bow on that, and uh, as we begin to head into a new year. But just a quick preview as we look ahead uh, to the new year, the next three weeks we're going to be taking a look at the three parts of River City's vision, growing in the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches. So that'll be the first three weeks in January, and that'll be a great way for us as a church to remind ourselves about uh, really what we're about and where we're headed and what we're doing and what matters to us. And, and uh, if you are new, uh, then that's a great way for you to get to know what the church is like and what we're about and what really matters to us. And so we would just really invite you to come and check that out. After that, we're going to be um, spending five weeks. This, is the, this year is the 500th year of the Reformation. And so there are a uh, big part of the Reformation are these things called the five solas. And you've probably never heard them before, and it doesn't really matter. But they're five really important theological truths that are like foundational core level truths about our faith. And we'll be spending five weeks uh, going over those things, talking about uh, the supremacy of Scripture and of faith and of grace and, and a number of things. And so I'm just really, really looking forward to that. And then uh, my guess is that we'll probably be in the book of Matthew as we lead up to Easter and, and around there. So just a quick preview of where we're headed this coming year. But this past fall, pretty much uh, the past three or four months, we've spent studying verse by verse the books of First and Second. Peter. And there, if you remember, there are letters written by the Apostle Peter, one of the 12 disciples, to a group of churches that are uh, in the Roman Empire, in a part of the Roman Empire known as modern day, uh, what would be known as modern day Turkey. And the two letters have a, a common theme to them, but a different emphasis or a different angle. And in Peter's first letter, if you remember, he was writing to these churches, he's encouraging them and he's challenging them to stand firm in the truths of the gospel. Because they were facing opposition to the gospel from outside of the church. Their, their faith was radically changing their lives in real and noticeable ways. And they were beginning to face um, some ostracizing and some, uh, and some kind of just getting pushed to the margins of society by their family and their friends and their employers and their society at large. And so there's this tension and there's this, this feeling that they should just begin to abandon some of the truths about the gospel. And so Peter writes them in his first letter and says, stand firm in the truths of the gospel, even though you're facing opposition from outside. In his second letter, he again is writing them and he's encouraging them, he's challenging them to stand firm in the truths about the gospel. But it's not opposition from outside the church that they're facing this time. In his second letter, it's opposition from within the church. And what had happened is false teachers had begun infiltrating the church and were leading people away from the gospel and away from Christ back into sin. And so what we see in both of the letters is that the foundational truth that Peter and, and just all of the other New Testament writers, they begin with, they keep coming back to, it's the transforming power of the gospel. It is really easy for us to uh, think that the gospel is simply the beginning point of our faith, that we believe the gospel and become Christians, and then that's this really good thing that we remember at Easter, and then we kind of move on. It's easy to think that faith in the gospel saves us, and then we just kind of move on to bigger and better things, more advanced theology, more important things. But the truth is that the gospel that Peter preached, and the gospel that all of the New Testament writers preached to us, it's the gospel that is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our faith. Yeah, the gospel that Peter preached is past. 
It has saved us from the penalty of sin and made us right with God. But the gospel that Peter preached to us in his letters is also present in that the gospel is at work transforming us, ongoingly saving us every day from the power of sin in our lives so that we increasingly, ongoingly look more and more and more like Jesus. And the gospel that Peter preached to us is absolutely future. It's not just past. It is not just present. It is absolutely future. See, one day our faith will be sight. One day Jesus will come again to rule and to reign, and on that day we'll be saved from the presence of sin altogether. And throughout his letters, Peter's reminded us of each of these aspects of the gospel because just believing that the gospel has saved you is not enough. Just believing that the gospel has saved you is not enough. It's not enough if you're going to actually live out the new identity and calling and purpose that you've been given as God's people. It's not enough if you're going to actually stand firm in the midst of opposition from outside of God's people, from inside of the church through false teachers. It's not enough. Now, if we're going to live as citizens of heaven, yet as exiles in this world from now until the day that the Lord returns, then we'll have to hold firm to all of the aspects of the gospel, its past, its present, and its future nature. See, the gospel has saved us, the gospel is saving us, and the gospel will ultimately save us in the end. And so as we uh, study today, as we wrap up our time in First Peter, uh, my heart is that, that as we just take a glance back at the things that we've seen, that, the, that the, the truth about all that the gospel is would be good news to you and that it would be a transforming power that actually changes your life. So to that end, let's pray, and then we'll uh, dive into our uh, looking back at our study. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for our time together. God, we are so grateful that we would get to study your word and get to be people of your word. God, and so I'm just, uh, we just come with grateful hearts to celebrate you and to celebrate all that you have been teaching us in and through the letters of First and Second Peter. God, we want to be a people that submits ourselves under the authority of your word, giving your word the highest authority in our lives. And so we just, God, we just come with thankful hearts that your word is good news to us. That is the power that we need that has saved us, that is saving us, that will save us. And so, God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see that and hearts to remember that, and that just that you would fill us with gladness and worship and gratitude as we come to celebrate you this morning. Pray these things in your good and gracious name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, there's no passage specifically this morning because we're kind of going to take a look back at a lot of the passages that we've been studying as we've read through First and Second Peter. But what I want to do is take it, that outline that I began with, how the gospel is past its present and its future. And I want to show us just briefly as we l- review these books that we've studied, how Peter articulates those truths. And what you'll see is that Peter began his first letter by reminding us about how the gospel has saved us. In chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, To God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That's First Peter 1, verses 1 and 3. He says, If you worship Jesus as Savior and Lord, if he is your king, if he is God, if he is the one that you've given your life for, then Peter says that that's not your doing. That was actually God's doing. That was his drawing you. That was his pursuing you. That was his choosing you. It means that you've been chosen to be loved, chosen to be shown mercy, and that you've been adopted into God's family. And at the moment God opened your eyes and enabled you to put your faith in the saving person and work of Jesus, 
put your faith in the gospel, you were transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. And at the moment, you went from being an enemy to being a child of God. So Peter begins his very first letter, his very first words to all these churches, he begins by reminding them about the electing grace of God, that they have been saved. Because he knows that if we're going to stand firm in the truths about the gospel, we've got to believe that the new status that we have as God's children, the new standing we have as those who have been shown mercy, that it's not going to change, that it's not going to shift or it's not going to move. You see, the electing grace of God, his choosing grace, his saving us, that's what gives us an unshakable hope. Not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that we earned or merited, but it was because of his choice. Ephesians 2 tells us that he directed his love at us. See, the good news about the gospel is that the gospel of God says that we are sinners, and that God's chosen to redeem. And because it was his choice and not ours, because we didn't earn it or merit it in any way, it means that we can be confident that his opinion of us isn't going to change because he loved us at our worst. And it means that we can be confident that his approval of us will not change because our approval, our righteousness, our standing with him has nothing to do with our performance, but has everything to do with Jesus' performance. Because we didn't earn his love, because we didn't merit it, we cannot mess it up. So Peter begins by reminding you, we have been saved, we've been redeemed. First Peter 1, verses 17 through 19, from, we've been redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to us from our ancestors. Peter says the gospel has saved you. Saved you from slavery to sin. Saved you from slavery to pursuing all the things that you think will satisfy that never will satisfy. And he says that the saving work of the gospel is finished, it's done. God has saved us, it's past, it's complete, it's done. And in choosing to save us, chapter 1, verse 3, God in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. See, once we were enemies of God, aliens and foreigners to his kingdom, but God in Christ gives us new birth, new identity, new purpose. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. He goes on, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see how all that's past tense language? Peter uses past tense language because it is finished and done and it's completed. See, the gospel has saved us from the penalty of sin. We are people who have been shown grace and mercy if we put our faith and our hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus. And in doing that, God's given us a new identity as his people. Chapter 2, verse 9 says that we are his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his special possession. And that our purpose in verse 11 of chapter 2 is that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, the gospel has saved us. It's made us people who have been shown mercy by God. People have been given a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission, a new existence. But if we're going to live in light of this new identity that the gospel has given us is because the gospel is past, we've got to remember that the gospel is also present. 
We've got to remember that the gospel is saving us every day. Throughout both of Peter's letter, he calls us to live holy lives, to live lives that look increasingly, ongoingly, more and more and more like Jesus. And his call is not in order to get salvation from God or in order to keep salvation from God, but it's in response to the salvation that we've already received from him. It's in response to the new identity that the gospel has already given us. 1 Peter 1 3 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had. People says, Peter says, You are new people, so live like it. If you remember, we said when we studied that passage, he says, Because God sees you already as his obedient children, live that way. Like we all know we're not actually obedient all the time. But the gospel is, the past nature of the gospel says that God sees you as his obedient children. You have a new identity, you have a new purpose. So live in light of that. And in chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 1, he reminds us where we get the power we need to actually live in light of that new identity. It says, chapter 2, verse 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, His Divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. See, Peter says the gospel has saved you from slavery to sin, from the corruption and the destruction of our sinful desires. But he says the gospel is saving you not just from the penalty of sin in the end it's saving you from the power of sin right now today it says everything you need for life and godliness now you have in what in your hard work in your effort in your diligence in your wanting it enough no it says in the gospel in his divine power See, the gospel fundamentally changes us, gives us new desires to live for God instead of our own consuming passions. And the way that we live in light of those new desires is not just by wanting it enough or by beating ourselves up when we mess up, but by believing the promises of the gospel are better than the promises of sin, by believing that Christ's great and precious promises really are good. When we believe the truth about the gospel, when we put our hope and our joy and our promise in in living for Jesus and believe that that really does satisfy, that it really does fulfill, that it really does give the life that we so badly long for, that it's there that we find the power that we need to actually live in light of our new identity. It's his divine power. You see, what's happening every day in our hearts is that there's a battle that's going on. Every morning when you wake up, there is a battle that's going on in your heart. And the battle is this. What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the truths about the gospel? Are you going to believe the lies that Satan constantly puts in front of you? See, sin is described in the Bible as a seductress. It lures us in with lies. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he wrote, about the false teachers warning these churches about the false teachers. And he said that they offer freedom but they're still slaves to depravity themselves. See, that's how sin always works. It offers something it never can deliver. It offers happiness. It offers gratification. It offers pleasure or escape. It offers freedom, but it always ends in slavery. You see, way too many Christians think that the way that you keep from sinning is just by knowing the things you shouldn't do. And if you just know what you're not supposed to do, and you know like why it's bad, then you'll just 
you'll just, you'll not do it, right? And so you set up a lot of fences and you set up a lot of boundaries and you just make sure that you can't get anywhere near doing the things that are wrong. But the gospel is altogether different because the gospel says you don't just put up fences to keep you from going the places you're not supposed to go. It says you change what you're looking at. See, the gospel says that when we focus on Jesus, when we focus on the gospel, we ask the Spirit to cause us to believe the promises that Jesus makes about what happens when we live for him. That when we focus on those great and precious promises, that, does, that won't just keep you from sinning. That's going to point you in a direction that's the absolute opposite way. See, God's desire for us is not just that we would like not do wrong things. <laughs> God's desire for us is that we'd be as close to him as possible. That we pursue him with everything that we have. That we would enjoy him as we live life designed by him. See, what will happen, you'll find out more and more, is that while sin offered what could never deliver, the gospel offers abundant life and it always makes good on its promise. Sin always enslaves, but the gospel always frees. Tim Challies, he writes this, he says, Salvation then is its, in its present reality allows us to slowly but continually be freed from the power of sin. Having once for all been declared right in God's eyes, we have been freed from our guilt, and now we can begin to be freed from sin's power. So Peter reminds us that the gospel is past. It has freed us from the penalty of sin. And he reminds us that the gospel is present. It's ongoingly freeing us from the power of sin. And Peter reminds us in his first letter, and he ends his second letter by reminding us about the future nature of the gospel. See, we've got to remember that the gospel is future. In both of Peter's letters, but specifically in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're told that one day Jesus is coming back. One day he is returning Peter, in his last letter, he uses the language about the day of the Lord. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and it will be a surprise. But what will happen is on his day, he will receive all the glory that he is due. On his day, he will create a world in which righteousness dwells so that we might enjoy him forever as we were intended to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, therefore he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, he says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when? He says, when Jesus is revealed at his coming. You see, what happens is, right now, our faith is, is, is in part, but one day it will be in sight. What we believe to be true, what we hold to be true, will one day become, we'll be able to see it and experience it. And so what happens is we set our hope on that day and we live now in light of that day. And Peter addresses these Christians as exiles. He's not talking about their physical address or their location throughout his letter. He calls them exiles and foreigners. And his, he's not trying, he's not like, a, it's not a derogatory term. He's trying to help them understand who they are and what they're purposes and what their mission is. And he's not talking about their physical address or their location. It's a reminder that this world is not their home. He says your citizenship, it doesn't lie in the kingdoms of this world, but it lies in God's heavenly kingdom. And he says, while you feel like exiles here, he says, you are children of the king in your true home. Children who have an inheritance that is waiting for you. First Peter 1 verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, that can never spoil, that can never fade, that is being kept in heaven for you. Peter says, it's the salvation of your soul. 
So Peter says we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and the future promise of the gospel is that we'll be saved from the presence of sin for good. And so we wait for that day confidently, knowing God's promises are true and we wait for it eagerly, knowing that when he comes, his electing and saving grace will be made fully known and that we will experience that in full and in its consummation. And so what happens is that we keep in mind in our eagerness, in our longing for Jesus' return, we keep in mind that his patience in return turning is to give us time for repentance and to give our friends and our family and our people that don't know Jesus to give them time to repent. So throughout Peter's letters, he says, and so the calling is to live godly lives. You live godly lives so that you might demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel, giving you opportunities to declare the transforming power of the gospel. You see, the way that we live has a purpose. It's not just because it's what's right. It's because when we live in light of God's truth, it gives us opportunities to tell people about who Jesus is and all that he's done. Peter says, you're not just exiles. We're not, we are God's chosen exiles, his exile missionaries. We live as God's foreign ambassadors, as his royal priesthood. Ambassadors are priests sent to represent God to people, showing the world what he's like, and ambassadors who are sent to represent God before people and to represent people before God. And so like 1 Peter 3 says that we speed the day of his return as we live lives that demonstrate and declare the good news about the gospel. And so Peter ends his, his final letter with these words. Second Peter two, second uh, Peter, yeah, second Peter chapter three, verse seventeen, he ends his final letter, this very near his death, and he writes these words. He says, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you won't be carried away by the air of lawlessness and fall from your secure position, but in the but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Peter says, remember the gospel. Remember and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ so that you won't be carried away. Keep focusing on Jesus. Keep focusing on the gospel. Keep believing in it. Keep growing in it. Keep pursuing it. Because he knows what happens when we forget. You see, what happens when we forget that the gospel is past is that when we sin, we're always consumed with guilt and shame. You've probably experienced this. I did uh, even this week. (laughs) You see, the gospel, the past nature of the gospel is crucial because it frees us from guilt and shame. God's really been graciously in my own heart the last year or so, just been uh, graciously convicting me and showing me and just growing me um, and just realizing that I worship comfort all the time. (laughs) I live... Uh, I try to escape responsibilities and I try to escape pressure and I just believe that doing whatever I want to do will really satisfy. If I just had some more me time, then that's just really what would fulfill me. This week I took some vacation time to spend time with the family and uh, usually, uh, I, and like usual, I forget um, that vacation time as a parent really isn't vacation for you. And I, I want my vacation time to be about me. I want, it, I want my life to be about me. I want my family to revolve around me. I want my time to revolve around me. And I had like a 30-year-old temper tantrum this week when like that inevitably wasn't true because like I'm a 
parent of a two-year-old and a three-year-old, and it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> and uh, so I just, I needed to go apologize to my wife uh, for just like, just ignoring her and pursuing myself. And I just got, I just felt like God's gracious convicting of my heart. I felt, for a while I felt justified. I was like, yeah, I deserve some me time. I've been working hard this year. I deserve some time to just do whatever I want to do. And then God was just graciously like, mm, no, that's not really how it works. He said, you, you've given your life over to me. And so your life exists for my purposes and for my kingdom, not for your own. And for a while, I kind of just like felt really guilty about that. I felt like, God, how do I, why do I keep coming back to this? God, I feel like I should be better than this by now. I feel like I should have like gotten over myself by now. And like, I feel like I should just be better by now. And then God graciously, his spirit again came to remind me. He reminded me that God loved me and pursued me not when I realized I was a fool, but when I was totally ignorant of it. He came for me that he might, his love for me is not based on how well I do or how obedient I am, because he chose to love me. And what happens is, is that instead of guilt, like for not being better, instead of that consuming my heart and like spiraling into shame, what happens is that I like remember the good news about the gospel that God said, I loved you, I see you, I've, I gave myself for you. Not when I was at my best, but when I was at my worst. And what happens is that like fills me with gratitude. It fills me with worship. It like, that's what fuels my longing to actually obey, my longing to pursue godliness, my, longingly, my longing to like give up pursuing myself and give myself over to pursuing God and his kingdom and his purposes. See, what happens is obedience stops becoming about duty or obligation, about just being a better dad or a better husband, and instead it becomes something I long for because of all that Jesus had done for me. Tim Challies, again, he writes, he says, the past reality of the gospel is it frees us from the power of guilt. You see, guilt so often seeks to enslave, but the past nature of the gospel is the assurance that the act of salvation in our past, when we were saved from guilt by um, having our sin transferred to Christ's account, this empowers us to live lives which are unburdened by guilt, freeing us to look to the present and to the future. You see, guilt always and shame, they always kill, but the gospel always leads to godly conviction and repentance and new life. I read a quote this week that said, a gospel-fluent community is evidenced by one that is, uh, it said, a gospel-fluent community that is growing in faith in the gospel, said, is evidenced by people confessing their sins to one another regularly. Why is that the case? Well, the evidence that's evidence of us growing in the gospel because what happens is when you believe that the gospel really has saved you from the penalty of sin, then you're like able to be honest about your own sin because you realize it doesn't bring guilt and shame anymore. Like you're able to tell people about it in such a way that brings glory to God because he's forgiven you from all of that. 
and you're able to ask for their help, and you're able to like offer that to people. Like, I hope that you see, like, I try to be honest with you guys about the stuff in my own heart that God's working through with me. Um, not because like I just want you to know you have a messed up pastor, but also because uh, like I want you to know that like the gospel frees me to like share that stuff with you, and I want you to know that the gospel should be able to free you to like share your sin with other people. Like, it's not, like, awesome to stand up here and be like, yeah, like, I worship comfort and I, like, ignore my family sometimes. Like, that's not, like, something I'm proud to tell you about. But, like, the good news about the gospel is that, like, God is transforming my heart more and more and more. And what I'm remembering ongoingly is that the gospel is good news, that God said, even though, you, even though you choose to worship yourself, I've given myself for you so that you'd worship me more and more every day. See, guilt and shame are what always happens when we forget that the gospel has saved us. But when we forget that the gospel is saving us, we try to live our new identity and our new strength on our own effort. The Galatian church was forgetting this. The Apostle Paul writes to them in Galatians 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He says, no, we're not saved by grace and then sanctified by our hard work and our effort. No, the gospel saves us, and the gospel sanctifies us. When we try on our own power, there are only two results. One, we give up because we realize that we have no hope. Or two, we just lie to ourselves and think that we're doing a great job, and then we just become religious, judgmental people. Paul, and remember that the gospel is saving us. When we look to the gospel to be the thing that not just motivates our obedience, but actually empowers our obedience and our rooting out of sin in our lives, then we actually have the power we need to actually obey and to live for God. I had a really good conversation with my mom this week. We were talking on the phone. There's just uh, someone who's just just really been really frustrating and hurtful towards her lately. And she was just talking about how she feels ignored and she feels unvalued and and used and kind of just disregarded. And she just she feels hurt, and she wants that other person to know that their actions hurt. She's not trying to be vindictive. She's not, she's like, I just want them to know that that hurts. And she wants to forgive and to not be bitter, but every time she thinks about that situation, those feelings of like bitterness and frustration, they just kind of keep welling back up. Maybe you have those situations or those people in your own life. And because just the previous week, God had been teaching me something about the exact same situation, I knew what to say. Because like a week ago, I would have had no idea how to respond. <laughs> You see, what happens is when we feel ignored or unvalued or used or disregarded by people, even rightly so, when we even justly feel that way, the invitation is that we might remember that we treated Jesus the same way and that we still do. See, my own actions say that I ignore God. My own actions say that I only come to him sometimes when I just need something from him, that I don't value him as the ultimate thing. I just value him as just one of the things on the list. What happens is like we forget that like the way that we treat God is far worse than the way that people have treated us. And the gospel truth is not just that we've treated God that way, but that in the midst of our treating of God that way, he still loved us. And in the midst of that, he gave himself for us. Not when we were aware of our sin, not when we were sorry for it, not when we like understood the weight of it. The gospel says when we were in his enemies, God gave himself for us. And so when others sin against us, we remember that the gospel, remember that 
we sinned against Jesus and that he chose to repay our evil with the ultimate good. And that's not just like this, oh, Jesus is a good example. And he's just super gracious, so I'm just going to try to be super gracious. And Jesus was just, I just want to try to be more like him. No, what you're saying is that like the only way that you can forgive, the only way that you're going to actually have the power to actually do what Jesus called you to do, which was to be like him, is by his spirit living in you. The only way that you're going to actually be free to forgive and not be overwhelmed by bitterness is when you realize how much you have been forgiven. And when you, the forgiveness that you receive, it like overflows out of you. It bubbles out of you. It's like fills up your heart as you enjoy it, as you treasure it, as you remember how much Jesus forgave you of. And so you'll have this longing to forgive others. See, the gospel empowers us. It gives us the power we need for my mom to forgive in that situation. And that doesn't mean that she's never going to have a conversation with a person that's, that's hurting her, that their actions are hurtful. But it does mean that when she does, it's not going to be, uh, it's going to be out of love and it's going to be genuinely for their good, not for vindication or to make them feel guilty or that she'll feel right. See, the gospel is the source of power that we need to look to overcome sin. When it's uh, anger or bitterness, whether it's addiction, whatever it is, we've got to become a gospel-fluent people, a people that knows how to speak the truths of the gospel into every situation in life. It'd be really easy for me to just tell my mom in that situation, hey, mom, just like forgive. Like, it, just do it, right? Like, you're supposed to forgive, so just forgive and get over it. That's worked for like zero people ever in the history of the world, Right? No, the gospel is not just ignore sin. The gospel is remember how much you've been forgiven. That allows you not to ignore sin, not to overlook it, but to actually deal with it. That's wildly different. That's actually freeing. So the gospel has saved us. The gospel is saving us. But the last thing that we, we, what happens is what we forget when the gospel will save us in the end that we live for the now instead of, we live for now and for ourselves. We get caught pursuing the fleeting pleasures of this world. We forget that in Christ there is absolute life and absolute joy, and we forget that he satisfies completely, that he's worth enjoying. And so we've got to remember every day that he is returning, that one day our faith will be sight, that one day we won't be exiles anymore, but we'll be children at the table of the king. And so we live now in light of that day, and we long for that day now, and we reject sin now, so we might live for Jesus alone, because he alone can give the life we're looking for. I hope that you see, like, the magnitude of the gospel. It's past having saved us from the penalty of sin that frees us from guilt and from shame. And it's present ongoingly every day, saving us from the power of sin, meaning that we have actually have the power to live godly lives instead of live lives that are consumed by sin. And one day, the gospel will save us ultimately from the presence of sin so that we might enjoy Jesus forever as we were always intended to. And so if we are going to be God's people, if we are going to live, as Peter calls us, as exiles here, yet as citizens of God's kingdom, if we're going to stand firm in the truths of the faith, then we've got to believe, we've got to hold firm to the gospel being present and past and future. As we take 
communion, what, we're, what we do every week is we remember the gospel. Not just that the gospel is past, having saved us from the penalty of sin. Not just that the gospel is present, saving us from the power of sin. And not just that the gospel is future, one day saving us from the presence of sin altogether, but all three. And just my question for you, my invitation for you, as we take communion, what part of the gospel do you need to remember? What part of the gospel do you need God to remind your heart of? Do you need him to remind you that you have been saved from the penalty of sin? Do you need him to remind you of the new identity that you've given, the new purpose that you've been given? Do you need him to remind you about how you have been freed from guilt, you've been freed from shame, you've been free to live a new life? Or maybe you need God to remind you that the gospel is present, that it is saving you. Maybe you keep looking to your own strength or your own power or your own hard work or your own diligence or your own anything instead of looking to the gospel continually to be the thing that motivates and empowers your obedience. Maybe you need to be God to remind you that the gospel is future and you feel like so often you, are, you get stuck, you, get, you lose sight of where you're heart is supposed to be focused and you get caught up pursuing the pleasures of this world and the, and the things that are here and, and now. And you need God to remind you of the surpassing worth of him. Why oh, it's worth giving your life all over to him. And you need to, to, him to remind you that one day he's coming back so that you might live in light of that day now. In communion, we remember all that Jesus did, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember the gospel. The bread and the juice are in the back. You just take the bread and you dip it in the juice. And as we sing and as we worship, no one's going to dismiss you. Just go as you feel led. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. And if you do, then the communion is a chance to worship him, to remember the good news about the gospel, that the gospel has saved you, that it is saving you, and that it will save you in the end. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you. Thanks that you have loved us. Thanks that you are empowering us to overcome sin. And thanks that you are coming back one day. God, so we're filled with gratitude and thankfulness for all that you've done. We are filled with like, just like a joy and a, just like a longing for your return. And so God, we just pray that you would empower us to be your people who live in light of the truths about the gospel, to be exiles here, but yet citizens of heaven. God, we pray that our friends and our families and our neighbors and our coworkers, that they'd come to know and love and follow you as you give us opportunities to demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel and to declare you because of it. Jesus, thank you that you have saved us. That frees us from guilt. I thank you that you are saving us, though we might actually live for you now. God, I know we long for your return or you might rule and reign in full. God, we love you. Thanks that you have loved us first. Help us to give ourselves to you. In your good name, amen.